Good morning, everyone. Everybody okay? Good. Um, <clears throat> can you imagine what it would be like if you'd never come across Christianity? Can you imagine what it would be like if you'd never had any knowledge of God? Can you imagine what it would be like if your life did not in any way include anything to do with God and Jesus? I find that really hard because I've never been in that position. But what I'd like to do in the time this morning is just think about the benefits that we receive from our Father, the benefits that we receive from Jesus and how much of a change it should bring about and it does bring about in our everyday. We're going to open with two songs. First of all, Father God, I wonder how I managed to exist without the knowledge of your parenthood and your loving care and then I will seek your face. Father God, It is an amazing privilege that we can meet together this morning in freedom, in safety, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an amazing privilege times I for one take for granted. It is an amazing privilege, Lord, that we are chosen by you and as a result our lives are completely changed beyond all recognition and at times Lord that is a privilege I take for granted Father as we come together this morning help us consider your love your gifts, your mercy, your grace, and how they touch us. How they've changed us as individuals. And how they will change us even more as the days go on. Father, please be with each of us this morning. Please be with David as he speaks to us later. But in all things, help us remember how great you are and how thankful, indebted, whatever the words are, we are to you. Help this morning be a time of contemplation, a time of thought, a time of looking again at our priorities and a time of coming out stronger wishing to serve you better thank you Father Amen the care news this week our prayer theme for August is 
for those that are showing Jesus to other people in a caring profession. Remember those people in our prayers. Uh, We also should bear in mind those people, those thousands and thousands of people affected by the floods in Pakistan and we pray for God's comforting arm to be around them and indeed uh, to be with all the NGOs and care workers that are um, trying to bring support, food and water um, to, to the people of Pakistan. There's no other specific care news uh, of our members but let's continue to remember those people we don't see very often, um, people with health issues and people like John in uh, the Congo. Let's pray together. Loving Father God, we thank you that you promised that you will always be with us, that you promised to carry us close to your heart. And we thank you and praise you and glorify you for new life as we celebrate with Eloise and Dan and the birth of their new baby boy. Lord, I pray that they will be enchanted with the miracle of new birth and the amazing gift that is and that that will bring them closer to you. Father, we we ask for your safekeeping for those people that we haven't seen today, the people that are away, people on holiday and all the, the young people in the, that are going to camp. Lord, I pray that they will have a great time, that they will feel your presence with them this week, that they will know you and learn to know you more. And I'll also pray for Jack. Pray that you will continue to do amazing things through Jack like you have over the years that your good news be spread to more people, that more young people will be enthused and captivated by your story and the story of Jesus. Father, remember all the people that are unwell and all the people we don't see. We pray for John and we ask you to look after him, to bless the, the work that he puts into trying to help the church over in in the Congo and Lord we also remember those people that are affected by flooding both in Pakistan and also in China Lord and though we don't understand why these things happen Lord I know that your glory is is shown in through the people that work to try and put things back together. Lord, help us in in what we do to do the same in our lives, in our community, to help you step by step to begin putting this world back together as much as we can while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we will be able to give generously to help these people that are affected by the flooding. And we ask for your care to be with them and with all the people that are trying to help over in those areas. 
Lord, we lift our activities to you and ask for a blessing on all that we do. We ask through Jesus. Amen. Uh, just on that note, uh, will be a special collection next week. The second collection will be um, the welfare. So that will be for flooding in Pakistan next week. We'll be collecting for that. Thank you. In Romans 8, it says this, amongst other things. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit of life but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace it strikes me in that one verse we have extremes death on one hand and life but not just life life with peace on the other do you ever think of the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you do you think of the scale of the gift not just what he did so at times we do focus in on the cross and I'm not saying we shouldn't but we do, we focus in on the cross but think of the scale of the gift and how it changed you as an individual how it changed your perspective how it changed your mindset how it's affected your approach to life I'd like to introduce a character to you this is a very real person um, his name is Gary Alvord he was born on the 1st of October 1947 and since the 9th of April 1974 he's been sat in a Florida prison on death row being charged with three counts of first degree murder Gary Alvord is not on his own because in the prisons in Florida alone there are 392 other people sat there with him waiting to die You might think, death row, that's a bit of a bizarre concept for a Sunday morning. Sometimes to help me, I've got to go to extremes. And the extreme is, that's exactly where I'd be if it wasn't for Jesus. Numerous people waiting in a location to die. What's the place like? What's the atmosphere like? What would you feel like if you were there? What would the mindset of the people be? Hanging over your head, all time, every day, aware of the fact that your days are numbered. Desperate, angry, worried maybe regret and imagine the emotional baggage you'd carry around every day if only I'd that's the reality of a death sentence and it's all because of what you've done 
And let's assume you're guilty. Because let's face it, you are guilty. You're on death row because of what you've done. Not someone else. You. Scary place, isn't it? It's a place I never want to have to go. But that's all, that's all hypothetical. I mean, we're not on death row. We're not waiting for the day when someone else decides when our time's up. Are we? Let's be very real about this. We were. Because until Jesus came into our lives, until God touched us as individuals, at whatever point, that's exactly where we were. Until we were touched by God's grace. And thank the Lord, we're not on death row. We're redeemed. We're cleansed. We're changed. We're saved. Our debt is paid. We are a new creation. Why? Because Jesus put his hand in the air and he said, I'll do that. Not because he had to. Not because he was made to. But because he wanted to. Because he chose to. Because he loves you. Because he cares for you. And the difference is, he chose to sit on death row. For you and me. Hebrews 10 says this. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says... This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. The internet is a scary place. On the Texas Correction website, you can see, see, photographs of everybody that's on death row and it's updated every day and it tells who they are their current weight their height all the details about them family background all the details and it's there and it's there in black and white their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us near, draw near to God, 
with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And that's where we are today. As we come together to share bread and wine together, that's what it's about. We're not sitting on death row. We're thinking about how we spend our moments, our days, our existence, in how we can spur one another on to love and good works. And thank God that this same Jesus, who sat on death row for us, sits on the right hand of God, waiting for the time when he can meet us. Not as condemned men and women, but saved to share in the kingdom. We are conquerors through Christ. Liz is going to read for us Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, 
but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation of the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God foreknew, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's sing together. We know that all things work together for our good, for good to those who love the Lord. Now in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is privilege. And that is what we come together to remember. To remember the... Words can't express to remember how great God's love is. That Jesus chose to die. Once, for all, for you, and for you, and for you, and for me. We're going to share bread and wine together, and I'm going to ask John, please, if you come forward and give thanks for the bread. Mighty God, we thank you for this special time that you've given us. And we can take this small piece of bread, that we can taste its breadiness, that we can feel its texture on our tongue, know that we are alive. Father, we see your hand shape the world. We see your awesome power, and we marvel at your plan. Because to us, we see a world in turmoil, we see destruction and flood and famine and war and and turmoil. We see a world in flux that you mould and push towards your plan. And to know, Father, that we are part of that, that you have made this indivisible that you have made this unbreakable, this majestic bond with us. And it is the majestic, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ that we remember now. Father, we thank you for this piece of bread. We thank you for the symbol of your dear son's body that was not just sacrificed for us, but that lived for us that preached for us, that binds us to you majestically, indivisibly, individually, and unbreakably. Bless this bread now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be no separation from our Lord. He has justified us through his precious blood. 
Mark, would you give thanks for the wine, please? Abba, Father, we remember our Lord Jesus now and remember that perfect man, the man who knew through all his life he was a man in essence on death row, a man whose life would be taken at the hands of men and yet innocent of any crime. And by that willing gift of life, Father, we are justified. So we thank you, Father, for your loving gift. We pray for forgiveness now as we share the wine together that as we take it to ourselves we can remember more the example of our Lord Jesus and take that into ourselves that spirit can fill and change us to renew our minds to live more like the life, the example that he set for us. For he didn't need the nails. He didn't need the ropes. He didn't need to be pushed and cajoled to the cross. But he went and hung there willingly to help us, Father, to be willing servants, willing children of yours. So that more can come to know you. Hear our prayer, Father. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Romans 8 talks continually about us overcoming through Jesus. And if there's a clearer picture than the bread and wine to show us what love is, I don't know what it is. And it gives us Jesus' definition of love. Which brings us a challenge. In John 13 it says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you. So you must love one another. What I've tried to do this morning is help us really consider how far we've come through the love of Jesus. In the song we're going to sing, 203, it says, Jesus, your love has melted my heart. That brings us a challenge, because that then is how we should respond to each other. And our love for each other should be the same as that that Jesus has given to us. Let's sing together. Jesus... Your love has melted my heart. David, please come and encourage us. Hello everyone. It's a, <clears throat> it's a constant problem for uh, speakers uh, to, to find a way of beginning an address that catches the attention of the congregation and hopefully uh, keeps them with you for at least the first five minutes. Um, so what does a speaker do to, when seeking inspiration for this? Well, uh, of course it shouldn't surprise us that the best person to look to for an example of how to do it is the very same person 
who provides the best example of how to do most things that are worthwhile, Jesus himself. And you'll remember, for instance, how, according to Luke's record, the very first bit of preaching that Jesus did in, uh, was in his own uh, home synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, he was asked to do a reading, quite a safe thing to ask a young man to do, I imagine the, uh, the synagogue leaders thought. Uh, and he read some words from Isaiah's prophecy. He was from the beginning of what we call chapter 61. Uh, and it was a passage that everyone would recognize as being about the promised Messiah. The, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Good news to the poor. Recovery of sight for the blind and, and so on. You know it well. And so did they. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and sat down and said, in effect, that's me. I am that very person. And when Luke writes that the congregation were amazed, uh, I think he must be offering the New Testament's greatest example of understatement. Uh, and, and the New Testament contains, I think you'd agree, some glorious understatement. There can be no doubt that Jesus had their attention. Well, I wish I could achieve that kind of uh, initial impact, uh, but I can't. Uh, so let's, let's look at another of Jesus' techniques. Actually, it wasn't only Jesus who used it, it was John the Baptist who did it first, but, but Jesus also did it a number of times. What you do is you refer to your listeners by a name or a description that they will not, to put it politely, feel very comfortable with. How do you think the audience reacted when John and then later Jesus invited their attention by saying to them, in effect, you lot, you're nothing but a collection of poisonous snakes? Uh, actually, to be honest, it wasn't at the beginning of uh, Jesus' speeches to the Jewish leaders that he said that. It was part way through, but nevertheless, he either grabbed or he re-grabbed their attention. So I thought, well, perhaps I should try the same how about this? We'll go back and I'll start again. You know what? You lot, you are all completely mad. Well, maybe not completely mad, but you're all suffering from mental disorders of one kind or another. Of course, at this point, I, I, I look around to see if you're all still here. Um, but, but before you do uh, decide to slip out, let me, let me explain. Uh, a few years back, uh, the, uh, the, the, the populist science magazine, New Scientist, um, uh, included an article about Samson. Uh, quote, the celebrated biblical strongman, as he rather quaintly put it. Now, you might think that's a rather strange topic for a publication that uh, regularly supports evolutionary thinking and generally has little time for the concept of creation by an all-powerful God. Um, the article, however, was by a neuroscientist and his contention was that Samson may have been the earliest known sufferer of a recently discovered illness known as, wait for it, antisocial personality disorder. Uh, and yes, I know what you're thinking. Ah. 
I know one or two people must be suffering from that, which is, of course, uh, the, the, the point of my introductory remark. More of that in a moment. Um, anyway, having, having enjoyed the success of his sortie into biblical analysis and uh, uh, encouraged, no doubt, by the fact that he'd not been, been felled by a bolt of lightning, uh, our neuroscientist returned later in that same year with a further revelation and this time it was that Ezekiel, uh, and again, I quote the magazine's description, the most zealous of all Old Testament prophets, unquote, um, Ezekiel suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. Well, you knew that, didn't you? <laughs> the, the leader writer, the editor uh, for the New Scientist, in, in commenting on that conclusion and sort of introducing the, uh, the, the article, suggested that we should hardly be surprised to learn this since the number of recognised mental and neurological conditions has exploded over the last half century or so. Apparently, uh, about 50 years ago, if you were to read the psychiatrist's main reference book on this topic, uh, the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, then you would have found a couple of dozen conditions listed and described. It's a book about that big. Now, it's a book about that big. Uh, uh, it lists about 400, including, of course, antisocial personality disorder. So you see what I was getting at early? With 400 to choose from, it's very likely that you and I are suffering from a couple at least, isn't it? In fact, the New Scientist leader writer with, with tongue-in-cheek, I think, um, went on to suggest that the real challenge would be to find a biblical character who did not suffer from one of them. And uh, uh, to uh, further make the point, he suggested that uh, Salome's eagerness to impress on the dance floor, quote, is almost a textbook account of narcissistic personality disorder, and uh, Herod's hasty order to slaughter every newborn in the land is a classic symptom of intermittent explosive disorder. Uh, and yes, they really do exist. Well, well, at least they really are there in the book, perhaps I should say. Uh, and he gives a third example, which I thought was rather interesting. Moses, he says, could easily qualify for delusional disorder of the grandiose type. The key symptom of which, according to the manual, is the delusion of having a special relationship with a prominent person. And now we're really talking, aren't we? Uh, and I can feel quite justified in my initial assertion that you are all, well, okay, we are all suffering from a mental disorder. Because under the medical profession's definition, we're all suffering, and I have to add, I'm delighted to confirm that we are all suffering from delusional disorder of the grandiose type. Yes, we know that we have, and uh, others may think that we're deluded, uh, but we know that we have a special relationship with a prominent person, in, in their definition. One of the cornerstones of the Gospel is this statement in John 17, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And 
by any definition, the Lord God and his son qualify as, quote, prominent persons. And what we're claiming here is certainly a special relationship because it elevates those who share it to a state not obtainable in the normal order, order of things. Eternal life, now in prospect and later in reality. So, ignoring the, uh, the implication of delusion, we definitely all qualify as suffering from that disorder. In fact, it is specifically what real Christianity is all about, a special relationship with the Lord God and with Jesus Christ. In fact, the special relationship with Jesus leads to the special relationship with God. At the very beginning of his Gospel record, John contrasts the position of those who do and those who do not receive Jesus. He states that Jesus came to that which was his own, humanly speaking, presumably, and his own did not receive him. That's chapter 1, verse 11. And then in the next verse, there is the contrast for those who do receive Jesus. To all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, but born of God. And if that isn't a special relationship with a prominent person, well, I don't know what is. And John writing in his first letter, chapter 3, leaves us in no doubt what a special relationship it is. How great, he writes, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And all that because of our new and special relationship with Jesus. Scripture refers to this relationship in a number of different ways. One of those is the idea of being in Christ. And this is also, you will not be surprised to learn, connected with the idea of becoming children of God. Uh, because Paul, writing to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26, says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's to do with having faith in him, but there's much more to it than that. Paul continues, For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, as it says in, in the NIV, which I think is much more helpful than the old put on Christ from, from the King James Version. Clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, you've wrapped yourself up in everything that Jesus is and stands for and you've made him your protection against danger, against embarrassment, against the cold of the real world. And Paul, a member of God's chosen nation and a privileged member at that, being a male born in a well-to-do family, makes it quite clear, verse 28, that it matters not one bit whether you are Jew or Gentile, what your social status might be, whether you're a man or a woman, 
What matters is whether you are in Christ. Because if you are, you are all one in him. So then you have a special relationship, not just with Jesus, but also with all those ordinary people of whatever nationality, from whatever social background, whether man or woman, who have chosen also to clothe themselves with Christ. Unfortunately, having and nurturing a special relationship with others in Christ is something that we're not always quite so good at, but we might come back to that later. In the next verse, verse 29, Paul adds another dimension to the relationship when he refers to it as belonging to Christ. Some people don't feel comfortable with that phrase, feeling that it implies a loss of freedom, but uh, I think it should be remembered that belonging to uh, doesn't only mean ownership by, it can imply membership of or relationship with. In, in any case, the scriptures talk in many places about the freedom that is found by being in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul even speaks of becoming a slave but he also makes it very clear that it is a form of slavery that has enormous benefits. On a quick reading, it almost sounds at first like out of the frying pan into the fire, but uh, a closer reading shows that it actually offers the very opposite of into the fire, if I can put it that way. Verse 20, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you benefit, sorry, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life, which sort of brings us full circle again. Nevertheless, I feel that we, we shouldn't concentrate only on, on that aspect of the relationship with Jesus. There are lots of other aspects which scripture tells us about. Uh, for me, the most helpful and significant of these is Jesus' offer of friendship. It's not perhaps unexpected to discover that it's John's Gospel record which opens up this concept for us. We find it in his record of that wonderful discourse which Jesus gave on the occasion which began with his uh, washing the disciples' feet. Something that was not generally done by a master to his servants, of course. So it's appropriate that he should say to them, chapter 15 and verse 15, I no longer call you servants, instead I have called you friends. Why does that matter so much to us? Because of what Jesus also said, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's what real friendship is about, elevated to a level that we can hardly comprehend from our own human experiences. And we've met here today to remember and to celebrate the depth of love shown by Jesus through his special relationship, his special friendship with each one of us. He gave his life for us and we, we say it so often because it's so important to us that, that if we're not careful we, we make it almost sound too easy one thing we need to do today as uh, we've shared bread and wine is to remind ourselves that 
it wasn't easy at all. The Lord Jesus surrendered himself to a painful torture and an agonizing death because you and I are his friends. And the more amazing thing about this relationship is that it exists in spite of what we are, not because of what we are. And the Apostle Paul, uh, writing to the Romans, illustrates it this way, chapter 5, verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we should expect that this ought to have some effect on us. Back in John 15, uh, Jesus also said this, You are my friends if you do what I command. And again, some people find this a rather strange remark, suggesting uh, a bit of a veiled threat, if you like. You know, you can't be my friends if you don't. But I like to see it as being the other way around, really. In other words, Jesus was saying, if you're my friends, and we've just been thinking about what Jesus' friendship led him to do, if you're my friends, you will want to do the sort of things which I have said my followers should be doing. And in the context of this chapter, of course, there's one particular command which stands out as being so very important. It's there in verse 12. Trevor's mentioned it already, in fact. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And he repeats it in verse 17. This is my command. Love each other. And it's all wrapped up there in the same short passage. We can't escape the linking of the two ideas. Jesus loved us as friends to such a degree that he gave up his life for us. And he wants us, as one consequence of that, to love one another. To love one another, we should note, as he has loved us. And in truth, we're not always good at it, are we? We sometimes have difficulty loving one another at all, never mind loving the way that Jesus does. And it's partly, I guess, because we're all individuals, we're all different with our own personalities, our own ideas, our own understanding of life, our own priorities, our own agendas. And we all have our own eccentricities. But of course, if I can bend another saying, one man's eccentricity is another man's normality. In fact, our friend the neuroscientist would almost certainly claim that we're probably all suffering a different selection of the 400 or so mental disorders listed in his manual. Now, you and I, I suspect, wouldn't go uh, that far, but it doesn't alter the fact that we're all different and we often tend to view the others, the, the, the ways of others with uh, varying degrees of disdain, scepticism, sometimes horror and even anger. What is it about other people? Why can't they ever see it when I'm right and they're wrong? Um, yeah, <laughs> undoubtedly the wide range of human personality has contributed to the psychologist's need to define so many different conditions. Certainly we are all different and that 
wide range is going to be found within all human groupings from political parties to tennis clubs to Christadelphian churches. Some years ago now, back in the days when the, the number of recognised mental disorders was nearer to, uh, to 50 than 400, a wise brother wrote these words. Each of us has received from his parentage a certain set of characteristics. This shows itself in adulthood by tendencies to be dominated by intellectual or emotional or other considerations. Many, he said, may be satisfied to live out their lives accepting without question that authority of the tradition into which they have been born. For others, the, the intellectual side of the gospel may be their chief interest. For others, the main expression of their faith may be in fellowship, communal worship, visiting the sick, working to help those in need. Although there's no reason, he went on, why these tendencies should not coexist in one person, they seldom do. Instead, there seems to be a real danger of an unbridged gulf arising between the people with different characteristics, and efforts at understanding are a prime necessity for the peace of the church as a whole. End of quote. Jesus said, this is my command, love one another. And I believe that the love that he advocated is one that tries to understand where the other person is coming from that tries to go beyond sympathy to empathy that is willing to accept someone else for what they are yes, even where that means ignoring all those little and not so little characteristics and actions that really annoy and seem to us to be so out of place in a true Christian the reason why I believe that is so, is this. Jesus said that we should love one another as he loves us. And of course his love for us, his offer of that special relationship, that friendship which encompassed his giving of his life for us, that love is one which acknowledges, recognises, understands and forgives all those little and not so little characteristics and actions that are so out of place in the true Christian. And Paul had lots to say about this, didn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, so it is with Christ. And of course he means, so it is with those who are in Christ, who have clothed themselves with Christ. For we were all baptised with one spirit into one body. And again it is, no matter what nationality or background or social status or personality. In verse 14, now the body is not made up of one part but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Uh, and so on, you know the rest. But in fact, it finishes up saying, God has arranged the parts of the body, and uh, yeah, I think it's a crucial bit, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
Now, we often read that passage and interpret it as referring to the different abilities and duties and responsibilities of those who work in the Lord's service. You know, the sort of thing. Some are prominent speakers, some teach the children, some visit the sick, and, and so on. And, and we do that, of course, because the early part of that chapter is it's specifically about that sort of thing. Well, after a fashion it is, because Paul talks, amongst other things, about gifts of healing and miraculous powers and prophecy and speaking in tongues and in interpreting tongues and, and so on. Um, you get the idea. I'd like to suggest, though, that Paul's analogy in this chapter is much more about uh, other things than just the allocation of jobs in the service of God. It's about coexisting with other members of the body without too much pain. And we've come here today, we've shared bread and wine in memory of the one who said, this is my command, love each other. And this is the self-same Jesus who said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, and it might equally be you remember that you have something against someone else, first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. So, are we really all mad? I don't think so. But we are all different. Are there really 400 different mental disorders? Well, I have my doubts about that as well. But uh, I also have a certain amount of sympathy with those who argue that this invention of diseases has its good side because, and I quote, it takes some of the unhelpful moralism out of our attitudes to problematic people. And, uh, well, I just want to finish by saying I think that that's a road down which we ought to be following Jesus. So now that we've all agreed we're all slightly touched... I think that's a far better place to be than the alternative. We're going to conclude by singing together, My lips shall praise you. I'll just focus in on verse 2. Love that conquers every fear. In the midst of trouble you draw near. You are the restorer of my soul. After which Pete is just going to conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've taken us from condemned criminals to children in your family that you've taken us from outcasts to being included that you've taken us from a position of hopelessness to one full of hope Sorry, sometimes that doesn't have the impact in our lives that it should. That we don't behave in a way that's consistent with the relationship that we have with you and with the Lord Jesus. So maybe above all, Lord, we thank you that your love is unwavering that it's constant that nothing changes it and that you're always there
Father, it's a great privilege to be called your sons and daughters. And we thank you that that's what we are. And we can't even begin to imagine what we will be. When, Lord Jesus, you return. And so we pray that that will be soon so that we can understand and experience this relationship fully.